Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of PA Insights with NCCPA. I'm your host, Jeff Boswell. In this episode, we talk with two board-certified PA recipients of the Kathy J. Peterson Grant to Promote Equitable Care about their grant outreach projects, what the application process was like working with the NCCPA Health Foundation, and tips they have for future applicants. Next, a pediatric PA shares her story of how she's educating her patients and parents on heart health, not just in the exam room, but through a children's book she's created. And finally, we'll take a look inside the PA History Society's newest book on PA history and how you can take advantage of its many resources. So let's get started. In this segment, we're joined by board-certified PAs Marlo Dombroff and Danny Hendricks, both are recipients of the $5,000 Kathy J. Peterson grant to promote equitable care. The grant program celebrates the legacy of certified PA Kathy Peterson, who has dedicated her career to promoting equitable care for all. I'm looking forward to learning more about how Marlo and Danny's projects followed in Kathy's footsteps and we'll also talk about their experiences applying for this grant from the NCCPA Health Foundation and any tips they have for future applicants just like you. So let's get right to it. Welcome, Marlo and Danny. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us here. Well, this is fantastic. I really am interested, Marlo, if you could tell us a little bit more about where you practice and your kind of your PA journey. What, it, what was your PA journey like? My PA journey started uh, quite a while ago. Um, I graduated from the Stony Brook PA program in 2001. So in June will be my 22nd year practicing as a PA. I've been in women's healthcare the whole time and that just kind of happened by chance. I didn't didn't aim for that, but it's been a wonderful career taking care of women. Um, I started out in private practice and now I've been at the same location at Stony Brook Hospital working in the specialty of GYN oncology for the past 14 years. Oh, that's fantastic. Danny, how about you? So I don't have uh, quite as much experience as Marlo here, but um, I graduated just over three years ago uh, from Nova Orlando or Nova Southeastern Orlando PA campus. And I've been practicing in dermatology for the past three years. It started off with me doing a six-month uh, post-school fellowship, and I've been practicing in a large, uh, very large company that spans over the entire United States, basically. Wow, fantastic stuff. Love to hear that. And and so, Danny, before applying for the grant, what healthcare gap did you see that really needed to be addressed? So the really cool thing about my PA program is that about eight years or so ago, it must be nine now actually, is um, a group of PAs just like me in school came up with this idea to go to Guatemala each year and provide um, about a week worth of healthcare to remote villages in the mountainous areas of Guatemala. And basically what they ha- they saw initially and what we continue to see today is huge um, healthcare disparities compared especially to um, what we see here in the United States. So not only a lack of primary care, but even the specialties like Marlowe's in and women's health to dermatology, to surgery, to dental care, um, all of the above. So there's just a huge gap there. And it was just amazing to see that the Peterson Grants was accepting not only about promoting equitable health care here in the United States, but also continuing that mission through our PAs, even in other countries. So I just thought that was a really awesome opportunity. 
That's fantastic. Yeah, that is one thing about the Peterson Grant is that availability to have these projects go global and really closing those gaps, uh, no matter where PAs are located around the world, even those like you that may even travel to a remote area for a short time, but then you can still build up a, you know, a practice or something that has some positive momentum moving forward for that group uh, for future PAs to go and be working down there. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Marlo, how about you? So the idea for my project really started probably a few months into the pandemic. I started noticing that a lot of our patients were missing appointments. They were not picking up medications. They may have been uh, skipping medications. And a lot of them were then confiding that they lost jobs or their partners lost jobs. And some of them even admitted that they were having, you know, we noticed weight loss. They were having a hard time feeding themselves or feeding their families. And where we are, I'm in a suburban location. You really need a car to get around. There are some buses, but it's not very convenient. There are long waits and lots of gaps in the service. And I started thinking about what if we could have a food pantry right here at the cancer center. So patients who are immunocompromised, especially during the pandemic, didn't have to get on a bus and travel and go to a place where they didn't feel safe or patients who are really tired or experiencing GI upset from radiation. So I thought, how can we make it really convenient so that way patients can get one of the basics, which is, which is eating? So Marlo, in talking about these projects, what impact is your project making uh, that you've seen so far as you go through the process of having your vision come to life? Because of COVID and the large organization, we, we've had some delays, but our ribbon cutting ceremony is next week. So I'm super excited. But even though it hasn't opened to patients yet, I've already seen quite a big impact on my organization as a whole. Um, through many discussions and collaborations, we found that we weren't really doing a great job in, secure, in screening for food insecurity. So now we're in the process of incorporating a screening tool into the entire system. So everybody who comes through Stony Brook Hospital gets properly screened for food insecurity. And um, I need a volunteers to help run this pantry because the goal is to have it open nine to five, Monday through Friday. So I sent out basically an email to the 400 plus clubs on the uh, other side of campus where all the students are. And I have been so inspired by the response. I have more volunteers than I can even utilize right now. So, and and just to see the excitement on all those young faces who are, who are really excited to be part of this project. So that's been really neat. And then just the collaboration, meeting people in all different parts of the institution, even though I've been here for 14 years, there were so many people I had never met um, who also have great ideas and resources. And it's really been a collaboration that I'm, I'm so thrilled to have been a part of. That's terrific because it really is uh, contagious, that energy and excitement when you start talking about your idea. As you said, uh, COVID has delayed you to the point where you haven't been able to officially start serving patients. But before you even get to that point, if everyone out there is really listening to how the community at large, volunteers, uh, stocking the pantry, all these different items have already made an inspirational impact uh, before even the first per patient is served. So that is just so great, Marley. I appreciate it. Uh, Danny, how about your program in Guatemala? Have you been able to revisit it and, and see the ways that the Peterson Grant has, has helped increase its impact in any way? 
So we were able to have another group of PAs and also current PA students from NSU Orlando go back to Guatemala this past August. Um, and what we decided to do with our grants was to actually build and raise money to build a clinic that's actually going to give year-round um, much-needed healthcare services to that region because, of course, people do not just experience healthcare issues. Um, when there are mission trips around. So um, that was our biggest thing. And what was really cool is we were able to see and physically actually see the building and how the foundation was laid, how uh, the wall, retaining wall was being built. And um, it was just a really, really awesome moment for us um, that we continue to get updates on via our, our contacts down there. But it was actually really cool for our team to see that building in progress because of the, the setbacks that the pandemic had thrown at us and all of the other hoops that we have to jump through building a clinic in a foreign country. Um, so that was the biggest impact thus far. And of course, I can't wait to see the eventual impact that the actual clinic itself will have um, on the community and hopefully as the country as a whole. Obviously, we're just going to be serving a specific area or region of the country, but we're hoping that it might inspire potentially the next round of PAs or potentially another grantee in the future to maybe look in other areas that are underserved in this uh, country in Guatemala or in any other country that they have a connection to. Yeah, because really what you're saying there, too, is another principle that I know we love celebrating Kathy Peterson about when we're talking about this grant, and that is building a long-lasting legacy. That's really, and you too, Marlo, I mean, if that if this pantry does gain the kind of traction that we all believe that it will, you guys are really the, the front runners and the people in the lead of building a lifelong legacy to help uh, patients Throughout the rest of time, I just I, I uh, so applaud you for that. I, if I wasn't so confined to this desk, I'd jump up and give you a standing ovation. It's just so <laughs> awesome to me. Uh, so could you both tell me maybe, Danny, start with what the process of applying for the Peterson grant was like? Was it hard? Was it easy? Did it take a lot of your time? Did do, Had you ever applied before? And was that whole process really kind of foreign and, and something you had a little bit of discomfort about but found that once you got into it, it was either harder or easier than than you thought. So this was the first time I did apply for this grant. Didn't really know what to expect because of that, but my role in Hands of Esperanza, which is our nonprofit, is actually the, uh, to write all the grants. I was blessed with an ability to just write and just think of things uh, and ways to word things, just vocalize what our, our impact was hoping to be and all of that. But I honestly, did not have high expectations to receive this just because I was assuming there's going to be a lot of applicants for this with very worthwhile, worthy causes. But I was very obviously happily surprised to hear that um, the foundation shared our interests in our project. But basically, it initiated by um, me just looking for grants for PA programs and PA applicants. And of course, NCCPA plays a, a pretty big role in uh, uh, the life of a PA. So that was pretty easy for me to find. Um, and I was actually watching a Q&A session, I believe, from a year before. So it was kind of nice to hear other people's experience, kind of like what we're doing here today. And just get the encouragement that no project is too out of reach or too far-fetched for us to make it a reality. So I think that was really huge for us because 
Yes, we kind of have accomplished and excelled in doing and organizing these mission trips each year, but building a clinic in a, a land thousands of miles away is a completely different story. So it's kind of a, a difficult and intimidating task to take on, but we just decided to go for it. And when I got the email asking for more information, I was super excited about it, obviously. And at this point, I've gotten to the point where I guess one recommendation I would have for other people applying for this, and if they are a part of a nonprofit, is to designate somebody to look for grants, kind of like me, because I have kind of formulated or seen a general trend in what most grants ask for. And then of course you do have to cater it to each specific one and make sure that you do qualify. And luckily this one was a perfect fit in my opinion uh, to promote equitable healthcare. So it was not a very rigorous or uh, time consuming ordeal because I had a general layout of what I tend to say. And then I just had to put it all together and of course, hearing from previous successful applicants also really helped me know what to kind of look out for and what to kind of highlight in our project itself. Well, it, it is truly a talent to be able to word those things. But I think you also said something there. There's two things. I can feel your passion for your project, one, and that makes it easier to word. And that and that's fantastic. And the second thing uh, is just understanding from others or going around and searching for grants. You get kind of what should be my pitch. It's basically, basically a job application, right? You'd still have to tailor that to each individual employer. This grant application, you're tailoring to the needs of what the grant is. And I do think that yours was a perfect fit, uh, as well as Marlo. So Marlo, what was the process like for you? Did you have any kind of difficulties or, or and how did you even stumble up, uh, upon the NCCPA Health Foundation's grants? So you worded it correctly. I stumbled upon it. I wasn't <laughs> looking for a grant. I was just checking my uh, email one night. And of course, I read all the emails from the NCCPA. So I read it and I thought, you know, this sounds, it brought back the idea of the food pantry. I asked a couple of my colleagues, what do you think? Do you think this would qualify, you know? And they said, sure, give it a shot. And and I don't have a lot of grant writing um, experience, unlike Danny. So I was really nervous about it, to be honest. And I'm going to liken it like this. I like to cook. I think I'm a good cook, but I need a recipe. Uh, I'm not good at thinking of it on my own. So when I looked at the grant application, I was, you know, wow, this is great. It is so clearly outlined what exactly the committee is looking for that all I really had to do was follow this recipe. And it was actually a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I had built it up in my mind, really intimidated. And I said, wow. So every night after work for a couple of weeks, I put in a few hours, I did my research and voila, it was done. And I also, you know, was intimidated submitting it thinking, you know, there are so many great projects out there. You know, what makes me think that mine is, you know, special, but um, I was also, you know, very happy to to learn about it. And my organization is thrilled. And And just touching on what Danny said about there's no project that is too small or too big. I, I come from a very large institution. It's a public hospital. We had almost a million patients last year. Our cancer center had 42,000 visits last year um, with over 7,000 new patients. So it's a huge organization with thousands of employees. So I thought, you know, what can I do in this large organization? Do I really think I can do this? Let me let me give it a try. And I was inspired by the, you know, the other recipients before. And I said, well, if they could do it, let me try. And it's been almost a year to date since I came across that email. 
and it's been a lot of hard work, but it, it is opening and, and I have no doubt it is going to be extremely successful. Well, and what I find inspiring about your story, too, is where as Danny's project is more directly healthcare related, yours is healthcare related tangentially, but still closes that equitable healthcare gap. So when we're talking about are these projects worthy, it's not just are they worthy, but sometimes people's ideas are like, well, does it fit? Uh, this specific grant, or would it be the proper thing to get a healthcare grant from? Your idea, Marlo, is very out of the box thinking. From from my perspective, I'm so enjoying this conversation and learning more about it that 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 should inspire those that are listening out there today. That it doesn't just have to be direct clinical experience with patients; it's serving patients and closing that gap in so many different ways. As I've said, that the brilliant certified PAs out there do each and every day. So uh, for board certified PAs or students who want to make a difference on their own, uh, what advice do you have? Marla, we'll start with you maybe for finding a topic or setting up your proposal for the Peterson grant. Well, I think this is perfect because we have myself, which kind of did a very, you know, kind of a local thing and Danny, who is doing something on a more global impact. So for me, what I would say is you could just look to your patients that you see every day. And if you listen closely and listen to things besides their symptoms, treat them really as a whole person, you the, the project will appear before your eyes. And that's really what it is. I didn't start thinking about it. Now, I know hunger or food insecurity is a social determinant of health, but I never really thought about it too much until I really started listening to patients and, you know, them saying, you know, I can't go to the pharmacy and buy my my medication. I have, you know, I have to feed my family or I have to put gas in my car. So if you listen closely and really see that patient as a whole, you'll see that there are plenty of ways that you can help your patients in kind of non-traditional ways. And I feel like as PAs, we really are advocates for our patients and we have the opportunity to be leaders. And so just run with it. If you have the idea, don't defeat yourself before you start, just go for it. That is a, is a compassionate characteristic of so many PAs out there. So I know um, that you all are finely tuned to your patients' needs. And that, what a great point you made there. Uh, Danny, do you have any advice for anybody looking to set up, again, their topic or proposal for the Peterson Grant? Yeah, I would just say really hone in and focus in on where your true passions lie. So for me and for uh, the about a dozen people in our nonprofit, we are so, so passionate about our project that for us, it kind of comes as second nature, honestly, for ideas like this. Um, and if you really just focus in and kind of run with your passion, I don't think that that will ever lead you astray, honestly. So all of us as PAs want the best for our patients. And of course, um, we all will uh, specialize either in kind of women's studies or in dermatology or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, what we truly care about are our patients and their improvement and their overall health care and just finding what little niche part of that you can run with and what you're very passionate with is I think the biggest thing I can kind of counsel future applicants on so that it's almost like today where you can see and hear um, Marlo and my passion about this um, and it makes it a little bit easier for the grants reviewers to kind of feel that through your writing and through your application itself. Yeah, that's certainly true. And also just like 
when you find a job like being a board certified PA that you love, it doesn't feel like work. And when you're connected to an opportunity like each of you have created here, all of the grant writing and all the follow up doesn't feel so much like work. And you can really celebrate the successes of the food pantry opening soon. You can celebrate those successes of seeing your clinic coming out of the ground in a foreign country in a place like Guatemala. Just so many wonderful things. Is there anything, Marlo, that you might want to add to this? Some some tips or, or tricks or secrets that you might have uncovered? Anything you want to tell our listeners about uh, that, that happened during your experience? Um, so applying for the grant was probably the easiest part. <laughs> I would say, you know, even if whether you start a project and you have a grant or not, you have to be flexible and patient. And that's what I've really had to be is very patient. Again, I work in a large system. There are a lot of people. Everything has to get approved by many people before we can go forward. I would set kind of arbitrary deadlines for myself and then be very disappointed when I didn't meet them. So I've learned to just pivot and set a new deadline and move on and just to focus on the positive and keep on moving forward with the project. And that's what I've done. And and along the way, you kind of pick up a lot of excited people with you. And I think also gets the word out about PAs that, like Danny said, we we really care on a, on a very deep level about our patients and we'll do anything that it takes to help them be healthy. That's fantastic. Uh, Danny, anything to add uh, about your experience that you think might be helpful? Yeah, so I definitely am going to piggyback on the flexibility part of this. Doing this, I think both of us were during the global pandemic um, or the after parts of it as well. And there's just so much unexpected things, of course, in life in general, but especially when there's uh, COVID-19 kind of uh, wreaking havoc across the world. So our biggest thing was just always keeping focus on the end goal, even if there were hiccups in the road, just keep that focus. And with time, it will all come to fruition just as it has for both of us. And it will be well, well worth the extra work that you put in after your long, busy work day. Um, seeing that your project coming to fruition, it's just no other feeling like it. So just be flexible. Even if you think that your goal or your project is kind of unattainable, I would still go for it because you'd be surprised how many people think that end up surprising themselves. Um, and as Marlo said, PAs are very compassionate, but we also are very hardworking and we'll never stop until we get to our goal of promoting that equitable health care for everybody. Well, that's such a great sentiment. And I appreciate both uh, you, Danny and Marlo, for sharing your projects with us today. I'm so inspired and I know our listeners will be inspired by the ways you're providing care, education and resources for those who need it most. And I would encourage all of our listeners to learn more about the Kathy J. Peterson grant to promote equitable care online at nccpahealthfoundation.net. Then follow in Marlowe's and Danny's footsteps and submit the required materials by the application deadline to apply for up to $5,000 for your very own project. Danny and Marlowe, thank you so much again today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, uh, we were talking about passion, too, and without patting ourselves on the back, I want to say the passionate people at the NCCPA Health Foundation are always there for you to help with the grant writing process, not just for the Kathy J. Peterson grant to promote equitable health care, but any of the many grants that they have available to all PAs out there. So please, again, check out that website, see if there's an opportunity for you to really realize that vision that you're having for closing that gap in healthcare that you see in your community and we'll be back with more PA Insights with NCCPA right after this. 
We're thrilled to have a special multi-talented guest with us here today on PA Insights with NCCPA. She's taken her passion for pediatric medicine to the pages of a brand new children's book. And here to tell us all about it is the PA author herself, Caitlin Pond. Welcome, Caitlin. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on. Could you tell us, Caitlin, what led you to practice in pediatrics and and what do you enjoy most about practicing in that specific area of medicine? Since I was young, I've always just kind of liked working with children. I've always just found it very fun. I was actually previously a CNA on a labor and delivery unit. And so from there, I just kind of always loved the dyad of babies and mommies. Um, and then, <laughs> But then I just kind of found that I loved pediatrics in general. And then when I got into PA school, um, again, I still felt like I thought pediatrics was the realm that I wanted to go into, but kept an open mind throughout. And when I did my peds rotation, there was no going back. <laughs> I was like, there's, this is where I belong. It's just, it's so much fun every day to work with the kids. And I'm like, a, in, in general, I'm kind of like a relatively outgoing and eccentric person. And so like, it, it's kind of it fit my personality, I felt like very well. And then I also uh, really enjoyed, I feel like it's a very interesting challenge in pediatrics to get not only a parent to trust you, but also children to trust you. Um, And so I kind of found that unique challenge very interesting. And so I've been able to like integrate into my practice uh, ways to get kids to enjoy being around me because, you know, they associate me with shots and other not nice things, swabs. So you found ways to like, you know, oh, is there a Spider-Man in your ear? Is there a unicorn in your ear? And so then suddenly I've had kids who were absolutely screaming turn into no way Spider-Man's in my ear. So it's just a a super cool and like unique challenge to get kids to be comfortable with your exam. And I think I find that's one of my favorite things about being in pediatrics. And of course, the other thing too, is it's just, I don't ever leave the office without feeling fulfilled. Well, that's great because it does take a special person and a special personality to operate that well in that type of environment. So I really applaud you for finding your calling and attaching yourself to it uh, as a PA in pediatrics. Well, The Art of Being a Heart is the book. And so what, what made you start with the heart? Was there any other parts of the body that were coming into play or it seemed like the one that just needed attention or what was the genesis or or the really the feeling you had that this is the one where I need to start with? The biggest thing I find the reason why I picked the heart is because, I mean, I'm sure you know, but the rate, the rising rates of cardiovascular disease in the United States and the unfortunate rising rates of obesity in children and heart conditions in children because of the practices that we have in the U S So I felt like it was the most prominent thing that in terms of like system wise that was affecting children, of course, like, you know, ear ear infections affect children significantly and upper respiratory infections and ENT, but that's not long-term. That's definitely short-term. I feel like the heart is the biggest thing long-term and probably one of the most common things that we encounter um, as a long-term condition. I also see a lot of children with congenital heart disease. So with holes in the heart, like ASDs, which is uh, atrial septal defect or patent foramen ovale, um, ventricular septal defect. So there's a variety of different heart conditions that can affect children and they're kind of unique to children. And so I think that's where the drive to write about the heart came from because it does significantly affect children and it's not in the short term, it's in the long term. 
there's been studies that have shown that we start putting plaque on our arteries at the age of three. We can start as early as three. And the um, the studies, they show it's usually on the aorta where it starts. And as they get older, uh, it can start to accumulate on the coronary arteries or the heart. And that's usually within three to five years after. So if they've already started with it on the aorta, five years later, they could have it on their their heart. So that's as early as eight years old. So if we, you know, we can target those kids early and we can encourage healthy habits and educate them on their heart as early as possible, hopefully we can prevent that in the long term. So I felt like the heart was not the most important organ, but I guess the most pertinent to children. No, that makes total sense from what I'm hearing you. And it sounds like that really also was the inspiration for the book overall. So the content of the book and how you were delivering it, what really inspired you in that way uh, to then get out on this journey and write a book? Were you seeing something in your practice that there was a, a need for a book like this? Uh, definitely, as I mentioned, congenital heart disease, because it's especially as they get older, I have quite a few Afghani refugees um, in my practice and because we're near Washington, D.C. So there's definitely a hub that's coming in. And I had one kid who was 12 years old and we found an ASD on her, which is a hole between the, the two top chambers of the heart or the two top rooms of the heart. And so a lot of kids, you don't have to get it repaired, but hers was a little bit more complicated. And she also had other little holes in the, the lining of her heart. So it, it was like trying to explain to a family who doesn't speak English, for one, the heart, and then also to a child how to explain like the heart and, and the, the different like anatomy and physiology of it and like why it's important, but also to calm them down. So to explain to them how this is a big deal, but not that big of a deal within the context of the anatomy of the heart. For instance, like explaining the two upper chambers, they don't do most of the pumping of the blood to the body. So it's not as dangerous as one that's in the lower part of the heart, um, but it's still not good because it can cause the one side of the heart to get too big and then that can cause complications later. So I feel like definitely congenital heart disease was a big driving force for me to be able to explain to kids why their heart is important. But then also, again, unfortunately, I see a lot of high cholesterol in kids and obesity levels and a variety of other things that also make you want to explain like, why is your heart so important? Why do kids give a crud at this age? And sometimes I would even say like to kids, um, you know, oh, well, your heart is so important. Kids would even say like, what, what's a heart? And so then you're like, how oh, do wow. I to kids like what a heart is and what it does and why it's so important? And so that's why I decided I wanted to kind of bridge that gap in education in kids to explain what their heart is and why it's so important and how we keep it healthy. That was definitely my like driving force for wanting to write a children's book. Fantastic. So the art of being a heart, what is it about? Can you tell us the journey the heart goes through or what kind of examples the heart is giving to help educate, uh, you know, little ones and and for the sake of maybe helping parents clarify different issues of the heart or why the heart is important? What it kind of does is it walks through a kind of basic anatomy and physiology of the heart. So uh, I tried to do it at like a very, very low level to teach kids what their heart looks like. And I even put a little bit about arteries in there and how the heart and the arteries work together to try to basically pump blood to the rest of the body. And I mean, I even put in there something about like what blood is, cause like a kid could be like, what do you, what's blood? So like, you kind of have to explain it on so many levels. And then it, it, it goes into 
basically that the heart is super important and what it does in the body and then what kids can do to keep that healthy, which includes exercise and eating correctly. So um, it kind of transitions from explaining the basic anatomy and physiology to why it's important uh, and how kids are friends with their heart and how to keep that friendship super strong. That's terrific. Uh, So I have to ask, we started with the heart. Is there anything else coming down the line? Are we going to see Caitlin Pond expand her talents to other areas of the body? I definitely would like to write one on the lungs next. I was kind of feeling out how this first one was going to go first. Since it has been going really well, I've actually received a lot of really awesome feedback who have felt that it was a really easy to read and understand. And the kids really liked it. They would say, oh, the kids asked to bring it out again and read it several nights in a row. So it, it like made my day to hear that. So since it has gone re- reasonably well, I definitely plan on writing um, one on the lungs as well in kind of the same style of explaining the lungs in a more family friendly way. And in the book, I, I write something about how the, the heart brings blood to the lungs. Um, it can go one of two ways to the lungs and then to the body. And so I put in there, you know, kind of basically like more on that later as like a bridging of like the lungs are its own fancy mechanism that you have to tackle. So, well, you got a kind of a cliffhanger in there to get to the next one. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin. I have had so much fun talking about this book, uh, The Art of Being a Heart. And if anybody out there wants to check it out, it is on Amazon.com. So, Caitlin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you, Caitlin, and we'll have more PA Insights with NCCPA right after this. The PA History Society recently published the educational resource Physician Assistants as Social Innovators in Healthcare, which describes the evolution of the PA profession and its role as a social innovation throughout the healthcare system. This book was four years in the making and includes input and peer reviews by content experts. This comprehensive resource includes the contributions of 20 authors, 70 reviewers, 408 pages, and 790 references, all within 14 enlightening and insightful chapters. Joining us to talk more about the book is the PA History Society's Book Task Force Chair, its book development editor, reviewer, and editor extraordinaire, Leslie Cole. Leslie was also the founding editor of the Journal of the AAPA and has been a PA for 43 years and joins us from Maryland today, where she currently works in primary care. Welcome, Leslie. How are you doing? Good. So happy to be here. Well, it's a thrill for us to have you here on PA Insights with NCCPA, especially talking about such a great and innovative piece of work. So please explain why the PA History Society decided to create this new book, PAs as Social Innovators in Healthcare. Well, first of all, there was a need for a new history book as the last one that was published by the PA History Society was in 2013, so 10 years ago. A lot has happened in the last decade. PAs as social innovators in healthcare has a much broader scope. It is set within the construct of social innovation theory and presents a comprehensive overview of the PA profession's impact on the delivery of healthcare. The chapters explore in great detail the transformation that have taken place over the past 55 years to ensure that the PA innovation continues to meet societal needs for effective, efficient, and affordable healthcare services. We've all read a lot about the unconventional roots of our profession, about Dr. Stead and the returning Vietnam corpsmen and medics. The story is always inspiring, but we've heard it before. 
What hasn't been chronicled through a historical lens is all the ways that PAs have been instrumental in improving access to healthcare in the last couple of decades. PAs have been vital to the development of integrated models of care and continue to make a difference in moving our current dysfunctional fragmented system of care. So this book's focus is on recent changes that can prepare PAs and policymakers for the challenges ahead. Well, that's really interesting. It gives us some good insight as to why it was created. And you mentioned in that social innovation theory that this was kind of set upon by that course. So could you explain to our audience maybe what is a social innovation? A social innovation is a novel solution to a social problem that is more effective, efficient, sustainable, or just than existing solutions, and for which the value created accrues primarily to society as a whole rather than a private individual. The nature of innovation is to rethink and revise. It's a story of endless possibilities. At first, the PA profession was a healthcare human resources innovation. As the profession has evolved, PAs have forged new pathways to innovate not only clinical practice, but also medical education and healthcare administration. As this book details, the model for providing primary care would not have been possible without PAs' involvement in team-based care. For example, the patient-centered medical home. Other examples of PAs as social innovators in healthcare are alternatives to house staff, first assistant surgery, hospitalists, PAs in urgent care and retail clinics, and PA experts in preventative medicine, public health, and telemedicine. As you will learn when you read the book, social innovations go through stages. To know that the PA innovation is currently in stage six, which is that of systematic change in the cycle of social innovation, is to accept that new ways of thinking are necessary, that greater collaboration is required, and that interactions and sensitivity to social, political, and economic issues is critical, along with a revitalization of purpose for our profession. Well, why do you think it's important then for PAs and PA students to read this book and to understand the role the profession has played in innovating healthcare? PAs as social innovators in healthcare looks at how the profession has advanced to meet the changing societal needs in healthcare. It is important for PAs and the next generation of PAs to understand their professional history in terms of it being a social innovation. PAs as social innovators in healthcare does exactly that. This book explores how PAs have been involved in the transformations that have taken place over the past 55 years and how critical it is that PA innovation continues in the future. By reading this book, PAs will be able to make the right decisions as they face new challenges in the future. For example, a chapter on specialization of PAs documents the benefits that we have derived from having the flexibility to move into different specialties and how this has helped meet the needs of overwhelmed emergency departments, allowed access to high-tech fields such as interventional radiology practices, and relieved settings and practices that are underserved with providers such as geriatrics and rural health clinics. Practicing PAs and students will be better able to sell our profession if we are well-versed in our recent track record, well-documented in this book. PAs as social innovators in healthcare is designed to be a springboard for further exchange of ideas. 
How can the PA profession redefine itself to better serve the public interest while maintaining its ideological roots and unique professional characteristics? If you want to begin to contemplate the answer, then read this book. PAs as Social Innovators in Healthcare was written by the best and the brightest in the PA profession. Names like Jim Colley and Reggie Carter, Ruth Balwig, Rod Hooker, and Chris Everett. The content was rigorously peer-reviewed to ensure that every chapter is relevant and accurate. And PA History Society staff and I utilized NCCPA and archive resources to provide numerous illustrations, tables, and graphs throughout the book. Well, that's fantastic. I love how you've reached out to so many even foundationary members of the profession. I think that's one thing that's so interesting about a book like this and coming out now is the profession only being 55 years old, you know, as of last year, and really have the ability, young people have the ability to reach out and touch the foundation of the profession and see how it's evolved through these times. And, you know, it might be something that they can really sink their teeth into to understand where the profession has come from and at this time see where it's going. So uh, could you talk a little more maybe about why reading this book would benefit PA students and newly minted PAs? Well, the book covers the historical development of the profession and laws and regulations regarding professional practice and conduct, the PA relationship with physician and other healthcare providers, and policy issues that affect practice. Information that all PAs need to know. PAs as Social Innovators in Healthcare offers an authoritative tool for PA faculty who provide instruction on these topics. A few of the 14 chapters include from Concept to Reality, 1960 to 1980, the past 40 years, 1980 to 2020, efforts to foster and promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in the PA profession, the importance of advocacy in securing the PA profession as a social innovation, PA innovators in alternative professional roles, and how research fueled the PA profession as a social innovation. Documented here is the vital role that research has played and continues to play in the evolution of PA acceptance and practice. PAs as Social Innovators in Healthcare is a valuable book, the most up-to-date resource of its kind, and should be on the shelf of every PA. I totally love all those sentiments there. And we were talking about maybe students and newly minted PAs, but are there others that would benefit from this book? Who who else should be taking a look at this really uh, timely and up-to-date and most accurate resource of PA history? Well, as I said, PAs as social innovators in healthcare is meant for PA program directors and faculty who are teaching the history of the profession but also for PA researchers looking for a one-stop authority on the various aspects of the profession. Of course, for PAs interested in making a career change or leadership move, you need to have a solid grounding on the strides the profession has made in improving healthcare to convince superiors to give you enhanced or advanced responsibilities. Also, uh, PAs who want to read about their peers in alternative professional roles. PA students looking for a comprehensive reference about the career they have selected, school counselors and media centers, librarians to assist students when researching career options, health systems workforce planners, policymakers and think tanks, and the public interested in learning more about the scope of practice that their PAs can deliver. 
to close, I'd like to quote uh, Chris Roman, who wrote a book review of our book in the Journal of PA Education. He observed that the PA profession has evolved substantially since its inception, and this publication fulfills one of the main goals of the historian. It helps us understand where we are going by knowing where we have been. What an insightful quote, and what a great way uh, to put a bow on this fabulous conversation about this wonderful new resource and, and how compelling and comprehensive it really is. Again, 14 chapters, 20 authors, 70 contributors and reviewers, a 24-page index, 789 references, and 408 pages of incredibly in-depth, accurate and eye-opening uh, information about PAs as social innovators. And if anyone out there listening to this podcast would like to order a copy of the book, you can order it straight from the PA History Society's website at pahx.org for $35 plus shipping, from Amazon for $39.95 plus shipping. And there is a discount if you order 10 or more books. And for PA History Society Associates, that discounted price is $30 plus shipping. So, Leslie, thank you again for your time today. We so appreciated having you on the podcast and you spending some time and really giving us some insight into this fantastic new book and resource for all PAs to enjoy. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Leslie. And if you have any questions about this book from the PA History Society or anything else related to PA history, please reach out to the History Society at contact us at pahx.org. And we'll be back with more PA Insights with NCCPA right after this. Thank you for joining us on this episode of PA Insights with NCCPA. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at NCCPA CERT, on Instagram at NCCPA underscore CERT, and on Facebook and LinkedIn, where you'll find us under the National Commission on Certification of Physician Assistants. Also, if you like this podcast and want to make sure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to us on any of your favorite podcast platforms. This has been PA Insights with NCCPA, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>